Hello, is this thing on? Do you think they can hear us? Nah, let's say it again. Hi, and welcome to the Gritty Nurse Podcast, an unfiltered discussion related to health and healthcare. My name is Amy. And my name is Sarah. And we are your podcast hosts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, iHeartRadio, Amazon, or any other podcast listening platform, don't forget to subscribe so you can get updates to when we have our latest episodes. Also, don't forget to rate and review us. And if you like what you're hearing and you love our advocacy work, don't forget to go to www.grittynurse.com and click on the donate button. As little as $1 or $2 a month for a total of $12 a year will help us with our monthly podcast costs such as website hosting, our hosting platform, audio equipment, and the time and energy it takes us to put out good quality episodes. We thank you and we appreciate you. Hi and welcome everyone this week. I'm super excited for the guest that we have this week. Like, I mean, I think we've been following him for a very, very long time. He's super popular in our books. We're excited to have him this week. So Sarah, can you please introduce our guest? Yeah, I'm equally excited. And I have to say, uh, our guest tonight is definitely a subject matter expert in his field. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. David Fisman, who is a professor of epidemiology at the Dalalana School of Public Health at the University of Toronto and a practicing internist. His areas of expertise include infectious diseases, public health, and epidemiology. He is interested in developing and applying novel methodological tools that allow physicians and public health experts to make the best possible decisions around communicable disease control, including the best available data. Dr. Fisman completed a residency in internal medicine at both McGill and Brown Universities before completing a fellowship at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston and a Master of Public Health from the Harvard School of Public Health. Dr. Fisman was also an AHRQ Fellow in Health Policy at the Harvard Center for Risk Analysis. Welcome, David. We're so glad to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm going to jump right into the questions, the hard questions. They're not, they're not hard, really. And the first question I actually got was actually from um, a relative of mine. And I'm going to say in the way that she said it, she said, how fucked are we? <laughs> she said, what is the data saying from an epidemiology standpoint? What should we really focus on in regards to, to COVID at this point in time? On a scale of one to 10. <laughs> so the honest answer is, is I don't know. I think the difficulty right now is, to be honest, most of the pandemic to date has been very, very predictable. I can tell you what I think is going to happen, but that may well be wrong. What, what's difficult right now is that you have so many different moving parts that I think it's really difficult to know which way things are going to break. And on top of that, a lesson we've learned during the pandemic, you know, I work with a couple of really great epidemiologists, Ashley Chute at U of T, Amy Greer at University of Guelph. And one of the lessons we've really learned during the pandemic is that modeling things out in exquisite detail is a bit of a mugs game because we understand the virus really well and how it transmits and what the characteristics of the virus are. But transmission of the virus really depends on human behavior 
and on policies. And those are really difficult to predict. So people can, you know, behave in very dysfunctional ways. You think, well, a rational actor would see that a deadly pandemic is upon their city. So, you know, they should take care and they should, you know, stop interacting with, with, uh, with other people in the way that they did, uh, you know, in before times. But what we're seeing is that some people will take that to heart and act in a way that I would consider to be more rational. Others will reject that and, you know, possibly go 180 degrees against that. We have uh, policy levers that governments may or may not decide to use, like opening and closing schools. Right. When, they, when they open and close the schools, that makes a big difference. Um, so if you're trying to predict what's going to happen, you know, you can't predict what Doug Ford and Stephen Lecce are going to decide to do with schools, you know, yeah. by the you know, first week of October in Ontario. I have no idea. So, so that that makes it complicated because the human the human fact the virus is easy the virus is pretty predictable it's the human factor that's hard. The other thing that's going on is a lot of things are changing in different directions at the same time. So we've got um, these amazing vaccines that have become available. We have most people wanting to get vaccinated. You know, we're pushing eighty percent of eligible individuals in Ontario. We have a substantial minority who don't want to get vaccinated. We can't vaccinate kids. We have variants that have emerged. That The variant emergence seems to slow down now because the champions emerged and it's Delta variant. So Delta, meanwhile, is pushing things in the opposite direction. So we've got, you know, vaccines putting the brakes on, Delta speeding things up and pushing things in the opposite direction. The way it may net out is that we're basically back where we started. In fact, if you just do a back of the envelope calculation in terms of what the reproduction number is for Delta and what the efficacy and coverage are with the vaccine, you sort of wind up with, oh, now we have a reproduction number around two, which is what our you know reproduction number was when this burst onto the scene in the first place. So it, it's really challenging to know where this is going to go. What I, where I think it's probably going to go, and sorry to you know be Debbie Debbie Downer here. I think because kids tend to have mild infection, and if you don't look for it, you don't find it. I think I think the role that schools have played in the pandemic to date's really been under recognized, mm-hmm. and I think when we look at places that are opening schools, what we see is they <laughs> Delta are kind of getting this vertical increase in cases, and I think that's probably I, I don't think there's any reason why Canadian respiratory epithelium should be viewed any different by the virus as Scottish respiratory epithelium or, you know, English respiratory epithelium or Spanish respiratory epithelium. So I think that's probably what we're going to see. I know some folks in the vaccine industry are really banking on for North America, this sort of being the last big wave this fall. Right. For the reason that the population at this point either has immune experience because they got vaccinated or if they didn't get vaccinated, you're looking at a disease that's about as infectious as chickenpox, as the CDC says, yeah. and there's no escaping that. So you're going to you're gonna wind up with immune experience mm-hmm. one way or the other, or dead. I mean, it's the third possibility. Um, so so I, I think, in, in, you know, susceptible people fuel a pandemic the way dry wood fuels a forest fire and forest fires end they end because they run out of fuel so i do think we're and i actually put something on twitter i think yesterday or today the reproduction number you can sort of see since last fall there's this gradual decrease in the global reproduction number of this disease which is probably 
the susceptibles gradually running out. So, you know, we're probably heading into the last act of this thing, but it could be ugly. I'm sure you probably heard my my little gasp there because, of course, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, we're kind of like we're all hoping for, you know, this this great light at the yeah. end of the tunnel. And it's just like, you know, we also have to be real about what we're seeing in terms of the numbers, in terms of hospitalizations, in terms of what we're seeing in other in other countries. And, you know, I mean, again, pinning it down to social behavior, like I tweeted out today, I'm like, you know, some of the things that I'm seeing with some of the people, whether it's on Twitter, whether it's on the news, whether it's when I'm walking down just to get groceries and there are protesters or whatever, like, I mean, this behavior that's driving the pandemic, it's this social behavior, I should say, that's really driving the, mm-hmm. the pandemic is a huge problem. Yeah, I just wanted to grab onto something you just said was that the CDC considers COVID as contagious as chickenpox. And um, I know we have stayed away from this topic until now, but I'm really glad you're here because I want to talk about the elephant in the room. And that is the fact that COVID can be airborne. So I'm just wondering why we aren't changing our precautions, right. knowing that school is opening soon. Like, like what's your take on that? <laughs> <laughs> Damned if I know. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I sort of know. There's been a huge amount, as you know, institutional pushback on the idea that this is airborne. And I I think that comes down to it's pretty clearly been airborne from March 2020. I mean, you know, by that time we had the Diamond Princess cruise ship where people were clearly being infected by other people with whom they shared ventilation systems on a ship, but who they weren't interacting with. Um, We've had asymptomatic and presymptomatic transmission, which implies airborne because that's you know, when you're breathing out, you're creating aerosol. So if you're infecting people just by sitting there breathing, that's not coughing or sneezing on them. That's not big droplets. That's aerosol. You know, we, we've had super spreader events as a signature event of this thing. I actually wrote a thing for ProMed in January 2020 about super spreader events. And this, has, this thing's going to have an overdispersed R based on information coming out of China in January 2020. And that's been one of the clues, one of the signposts that pointed to airborne. But, you know, I was on a radio show around February 2020, and I was spouting the usual, you know, dogma, physician dogma, that oh, it's large droplets, not clear that masks are really helpful, blah, blah, blah. Like all the stuff that I think some of my colleagues are, I, I think we've moved on on the masks, but in terms of the big droplets, I think I still have colleagues who are sticking to that. It's not based in anything. You know, it's what we're sort of taught during training. But one of the neat silver linings for me in terms of this um, pandemic, this this horrible experience in a lot of ways, has been getting to know people from other disciplines, particularly engineers and aerosol scientists. And they're looking at the doctors like, what are you talking? Like, this is not how physics works. This is not how, how these things move. And I think yet, either yesterday or the day before, there was a state of the science review in the journal Science that talks about aerosol transmission of viral diseases. So I think we've reached the point now where, you know, the science has moved and you have a journal like Science saying, well, airborne disease, it's been pretty clear for a while. I think you have a lot of folks who have to climb down now. And that's always difficult when you've sort of been saying for the last year and a half, this is large droplets in contact. And at this point, that's patently wrong, but you have to find a way to climb down, mm-hmm. the, you know, out of the tree that you're stuck in. 
And I think there's also an economic aspect to this where, you know, so someone, someone else said, said it, you know, surgical masks are 10, 10 cents a pop. Right. And then 95s are $1.50. And someone has to foot that. And, and we don't have enough negative pressure rooms in hospitals to put all the COVID patients. So someone needs to actually say, well, we have to do things differently. But, you, you know, you, you actually are going to have to come up with new protocols. So I think I think they're both there's both sort of the kind of professional pride for some of the folks who are calling the shots, also the economics and the practicalities, but you can't, it's really been the tail wagging the dog where you can't let the resource constraints decide what the science says. You have it to, you know, I, I mean, we don't live in a world where, where we have unconstrained resources and we can get whatever we want. I mean, I don't have like my, you know, a Lamborghini parked in the car in, in the street outside my house. Right. Oh, that's probably not my thing anyway. But you know, I mean, I mean, I, I, I'm not unconstrained in terms of the choices that I make, and neither is healthcare. But you can't, you know, you can't start with the constraints and then go back and say these constraints are going to define what science is and how how mm-hmm. you know how planet Earth works in terms of how small particles move around. Right. I mean, that's right. just dumb. So, so I, th- I think that's why we're stuck. And I, and I, I mean, I was involved with Ona. Ona challenged Directive Five from the Ontario yeah. Chief Medical Officer of Health, and we didn't, we didn't win. You know, yeah. we, we we wanted much more widespread access to N95 masks. You know, nursing nursing colleagues were successful in Quebec. They were successful in Australia. weren't successful in Ontario. I, I, I think it's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. And so, what I'm hearing you say is that. The majority of transmission is airborne. Is that correct, or does it depend on the situation? I mean, it may well. You know, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when community MRSA burst onto the scene. There was kind of this goofy editorial. There was an article in a journal called Clinical Infectious Diseases that talked about sexual transmission of MRSA. You know, two people hooked up, <laughs> and one of them was an MRSA carrier, and then the other had, I think, like oils in their groin. Oh, my God. <laughs> really sorry, no, no, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> but, but, you know, it was accompanied by this editorial saying, is MRSA a sexually transmitted infection? And it's like, well, you know, it's just another form of close contact between individuals. If I've got, you know, what whatever particular cootie it is that I have, and, uh, you know, I get up close and personal with someone, obviously, <laughs> you know, that's one way for me to transmit it. I, th- I think I think the important thing with COVID, I, th- I think it, it clearly has been the dominant mode of transmission. I think super spreading, which is aerosol, is the driver of the pandemic. Uh, certainly early early on, that was the minority of people were doing were, were super spreaders. So the mode, like the average number of secondary cases, and you saw this again in China. And, in, there's data from February 2020 showing that the most common number of secondary infections from a primary infection of COVID first emerged was was one, right? Mm-hmm. Which is not a reproduction number of two and a half. And the reason it had an average reproduction number of two and a half is most people infect one secondary infection, and that's just going to die out. But then you have a small minority of people who cause these big super spreader clusters. And that's what drove the global pandemic. And that's also why when you have something driven by super spreaders, you don't have to catch every case in order to successfully control it. And that's why places like Japan, New Zealand, Korea, for a long time, were very, very successful in controlling this. 
I think it's getting harder and harder. Australia's into a bit of a hard time now. They did very well. But with Delta, it's no longer possible to do that. And I think what's happening is the average case is now capable of creating an epidemic. So the, the, the virus has become so infectious with Delta that an average infected person can create a super spreader event or a chain of transmission that propagates. And we didn't have that at the outset. So I think, yeah, I think aerosol, and I think at this point, it's it's going to be slap in the face, obvious to people this fall, but clearly it's aerosol. But, but, but the clues have been there from the get-go. And I think the other piece that you kind of mentioned too, David, was the fact that we're, we're, we're still wearing like health care professionals who are seeing patients with COVID are wearing N95s. I would love to see people back off and be like, well, yeah, it's not really, you know, aerosol and back down to like a surgical level grade three. We're not going to see that. But the thing right. is... I, I do feel that there's that fiscal responsibility where they're kind of like, even in the first and second wave, when, um, you know, Ona had made those challenges, we were seeing that nurses were starting to get N95s. There was still that, you know, nurses were having to reuse N95s. And, right. and that was scary, too. And a lot of questions were like, should we be reusing N95s? And yeah. And I think that's probably okay if you if you think about what the mask is doing. Right. You know, I think I think there's this sort of this weird sort of mythology around you're somehow gonna infect people by walking around with this filter on your face. There are a lot of professions where people wear respirators all day at work. Mm-hmm. And I I think we missed an opportunity to sort of embrace that a little bit in healthcare. I mean, can you imagine like things like elastomeric? respirators with the side filters that would be like culturally that would be a big shift for us in health yeah that'd be huge you know you'd look like a bit of a a space person or whatever like astronaut and then you know people would look at you funny but i mean you know when we first started masking up i was working at toronto western and we actually were they were really early i think this would have been march 2020 to get all staff into surgical masks which was great i think they're a bit ahead of the curve but the first day, it felt weird. Right. No, and I agree. It just becomes, well, you know, this is how we do it. One of the weird effects that you see in the Ontario data, and I'm less cutting edge with the Ontario data. I stepped away from the science table, as you know, um, yeah. last week. But one of the really interesting things that you see in Ontario and you see it in other places is even adjusting for age and comorbidity, healthcare workers seem to get a lot less sick from COVID. The non-healthcare workers, and I don't know if that's like a dose thing because we've been masked and we're, you know, we're masked at both ends, and so we're when when we do get infected, we're getting a smaller dose. The people I've I've really worried about for a while now and a lot are our patients, who you know by definition people have comorbidities. That's why they're in a healthcare facility. I think there has to at some point be a reckoning in terms of gaps in infection control that have allowed so many people to come into hospital in our province without COVID, get COVID in the hospital and die of COVID there. Right? Yeah. I haven't looked at these numbers in a couple of months, but, but as of this past spring, it was well over 500 people in that, you know, in that category who come in, into hospital, got COVID in the hospital and died. And I think that's something that's sort of been brushed under the rug a bit. No, I agree. And I think this is where we would talk about some of the work that needs to be done in in terms of healthcare workers, right? Like we're talking about mandatory vaccination. We're talking about mandatory vaccination of healthcare workers who work in hospitals. And for whatever reason, we do have that small 
crowd of people who are like, oh, this is impinging on my rights and freedoms. Right. Sarah and I don't believe that. We're just saying, you know, your job is not owed to you. At the end of the day, patients, patient care, patient safety is of the utmost importance. And if you can't reckon, like you said, with that, that they shouldn't be working at the bedside. I wonder if I could just reframe this a little bit and say, sure. I think one of the most interesting things about the pandemic is what it's taught us about kind of ourselves, our institutions, and our society. Absolutely. I feel like I've had my eyes open so many times now. There's so many things that I took for granted and thought were, you know, it's just how it works in Ontario and Canada and just really confronted with some hard, <laughs> some hard truths, right? That's for sure. Like, I mean, I I feel like we could do a whole episode just on the politics behind all of what's happening with the right wing and, you know, how it has been unfolding over the past, you know, couple months. It's, it is unreal. But I, but I am going to shift gears a little bit and go to like another question that, you know, has been coming to my mind and hopefully you can kind of help us answer this one. So, um, Many experts have said that they expect COVID-19 to become an endemic disease. Um, how does a disease go from being acute to endemic? What is a likely timeline for COVID-19 to become an endemic? Like how long are we in this crap for? Yeah, I think the, the idea is it's very much like a forest fire burning through its fuel. A forest fire stops because it runs out of dry brush to burn. A pandemic is a pandemic because it's often a new disease or it's an old disease that's sort of shifted enough that there's not widespread immunity to it in populations. So it just roars through like wildfire. Eventually the wildfire, you know, contains the seeds of its own destruction because it uses up the fuel. So what we're, what we're even actually starting to see, and you can see this in the data, is you're starting to see the pandemic now slowing down because you have a buildup of uh, immunity in the population via prior immune experience or vaccination. And what happens is the reproduction number, ep epidemic growth happens when each old case makes more than one new case on average before it gets better. What you, what you have is um, as more and more people uh, are either infected or vaccinated, you have that reproduction number come down and down and down until it hits one. And then basically via its own momentum, because there's so many infectives around, it doesn't just stop suddenly when the reproduction number hits one or drops below one. It's going to keep infecting for a while. So you're going to wind up with some overshoot, and you're going to wind up with more than enough immune people in the population to really uh, 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 slow down COVID transmission. So you're likely to have a window of some period of time after the pandemic where COVID may even seem to disappear or become relatively uncommon. But what happens is, is people are going to lose susceptibility then because of time from infection. And also because we have, you know, because human beings don't live forever, older people are going to die out and be replaced by young people, babies who are going to turn into kids who are going to be susceptible to COVID uh, in the absence of vaccine for kids. So you replenish the susceptibles and that allows the thing to take off again. So what you get ultimately is, as it becomes endemic, what you should get are sort of these seasonal waves like you see with flu. But it's not the gigantic, mm -hmm. you know, society disrupting waves that you see in a, in a pandemic. Now, it remains a highly virulent disease. I mean, this thing has an infection fatality ratio of about 1%, 1%, which is 1918, 1919 flu. 
So it's very virulent. Right. And we basically, what we're going to wind up with is a really terrible wintertime disease. I think kids are the key because kids coming in, you know, you're going to have more and more and more of the population that's exposed to this as children and is going to have kind of hard immune experience from a young age. They were exposed to this when they mostly didn't get that sick from it. And those people are probably going to have a different lifetime trajectory in terms of if they get COVID later in life, it's probably is going to be milder. Ultimately, I think you'll see it settle down and become an endemic disease. But it does look like it's going to be with us for long haul. Lots of animals can get COVID, cats, dogs, um, I believe deer. Really? Deer are super positive at this point. You know, we've had human to mink to human transmission on mink farms. So once you have an animal reservoir, eradication is off the table, right? The disease we try to eradicate, like we eradicated smallpox, we could theoretically eradicate measles, the things that only have a human reservoir. And this thing has wildlife reservoirs, so we're never going to get rid of it. But, but we can get vaccines that make, make infection with it uncommon or mild. And we, you know, we have those, and I think those will, those will keep improving. And I, I, I think we will get vaccines in the next six months for kids, too. And that's going to oh, be that is good important. news. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it will. And, and, and I think that'll make a huge difference. Children, vaccine programs in children are disproportionately impactful for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is kids are captive at school. We have a lot of leverage in terms of getting kids vaccinated. We have vaccine, you know, we have Immunization of School Pupils Act in Ontario, for example, that really exerts s- s- significant pressure on folks to get their kids vaccinated. Um, and, um, you, you know, so, so you get away with some of the issues you have with adults. Adult immunization is sort of notorious because adults really don't show up. That we've got to eighty percent of adults is kind of remarkable. But the other thing with kids is you do have this supply of susceptibles coming in, and if they're getting vaccinated, that really should shut the disease down in terms of of widespread transmission. So it should be very controllable ultimately. The vaccination of kids is going to be a really key part of that. That's good, because I think a lot of people right now are holding their breath. They're just kind of wondering, when are we going to vaccinate kids under 12? And it sounds like that's coming pretty soon. We're just waiting for a bit more data on the trials, I presume? Exactly, exactly. The US FDA, I think once the myocarditis thing happened in teenagers, the US FDA pushed the vaccine companies to increase their sample sizes. So that so that they would be adequately powered to see myocarditis if it's going to happen in kids. Uh, so I think that that's delayed the trials by a couple of months. But yeah, I think we'll see those mid fall, and and um, if all goes well, hopefully we'll be into vaccinating uh, younger children in the new year. Yeah. So I just going to change gears a bit here, and um, just in terms of wave four, what we know about it so far, do you think that this is going to be the most deadly wave? From, from what we know so far, what are your thoughts? So as I say, I think there are moving parts that are moving in different directions. So I think it's hard to know which way this breaks. Delta is much more infectious. One of the things that you saw in 1918 is that by the fourth wave, the virus, you, you know, and 1918 is, is challenging, right? Because they didn't even know this was a virus until the 1930s, right? At the time, during the influenza pandemic, they actually thought they'd identified the pathogen that was causing the pandemic, but they thought it was the bacteria Haemophilus influenzae. That's why it's got that name. They even thought they had a vaccine. They invented 
Haemophilus influenzae vaccines, like bacterial vaccines. But there was the suggestion at the time that the fourth wave was much less severe than earlier waves had been. And then H, it was H1N1 flu that then stayed around until 1957 as seasonal flu and wasn't anywhere near as devastating. So in that case, you seem to have drift towards a less virulent virus. Delta, unfortunately, has gone the opposite direction for COVID. So, so it's way more infectious. It's also more virulent. You know, in our data, it's about, it kills people about three times as often per case. Risk is about tripled in terms of mortality. We see that across the lifespan. We even see that in, in children under 10, where it seems to increase risk of hospitalization threefold in kids under 10. So it's, it's gone the wrong way. I think a lot of us were expecting, oh, it's an animal virus. It's going to get used to people. And as it's going to trade off infectivity for virulence. So it's going to get less virulent, more infective, and, and it'll sort of quiet down. <laughs> and it's gone exactly the opposite direction. So, that, so that's really bad news. The good news, of course, is that people are vaccinated. And we know that even in folks in whom vaccination fails, the severity of infection is really attenuated. So they're much less likely to die. They're much less likely to go to the ICU. So you've got these two things pushing in different directions. I think it's unfortunately going to net out in Ontario, for example, where we are, with a very severe wave for us for the following reason. So I think between between the virus getting more infectious and more, um, more deadly, but also vaccination counterbalancing that, I think we've got to a place where those have sort of canceled each other out. I think the reason it's going to be a deadlier wave than we've seen is because now the political pressure is to really open things up right. and let people get back to life. As you were saying, you know, everyone's tired of this. And, you know, we offered you the vaccine. You didn't want a vaccine. Okay, that's your choice, you know, but we're not holding the economy up just because you decided you didn't want a vaccine. All these other people got vaccines. So let's get, you know, get back to business. And I think that reluctance to use any sort of kind of policy levers or a non-pharmaceutical public health interventions because vaccines available means that this is going to rip through unvaccinated people of whom, you know, in adults, there's about 2 million of those in Ontario, right? And you say, oh, we got 80% of the adults vaccinated. Well, there's 10 million adults, right? So that means you've got 2 million people who are totally susceptible. Some of them may have uh, immunity from prior infection, but most not. And I think that can fill our ICUs up pretty quickly. So I do think, I do think we're going to have a rough ride this fall. I mean, I, there's no delight in it. I, it's sort of, it's, it stinks because it's, it's a bit of an own goal. You know, I think with different policy, more mu- I think more muscular policy around carrots and sticks, getting people to get vaccinated. I think we could have avoided that and, you know, focused a bit more on, 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 on protecting schools. I think, I think those are the two things we needed yeah. to do and we've done neither. Well, see, that's, that's the most concerning to me because that means also my twins are nine. Uh, my daughter's six. They can't get vaccinated, right? Both of my boys, yeah. like I had them prematurely. Yeah. So they always have respiratory issues. Every time they catch a cold, like they've been to the hospital. Like, I mean, for me, it's almost like a no-brainer to say, okay, fine. I'm not sending them in the fall because the government is not going to protect my children, right? And I think it's it's unfortunate because I have a job. My husband has a job. 
I have a t- both of my children have yeah. special needs. Like it's just yeah. it's like it just really really infuriates me to be honest. Yeah, it's it's really I agree with you. It's really frustrating. I think this sort of half measures in terms of protecting schools. I think it's great we're masking. Um, I think it's great that they've sort of have fixed up ventilation in some schools. I think it's great that they're finally accepting the HEPA filter thing. But yeah, I mean, I talk to people at both public and private schools, and I know there are some private schools that are really invested in things like testing kids, for example. We've, we've had, you know, basically a year and a half to figure this out in public schools and in Ontario, and we just haven't. That said, I think Toronto District School Board has actually been an outlier and is going well beyond what the province is doing. And they, they are trying to get testing testing programs going in Toronto schools, I believe. So, but, but yeah, at the provincial level, it's been a, been a bit of a disappointment. You, you know, and the thing is, so, and this is, this is the thing that I think it's hard for people to wrap their heads around and, and this gets mm-hmm. spun in different ways by different folks, depending what their sort of agenda is. Kids on average are going to be okay, right? I mean, this is a, this is a disease where the Israeli data, actually there's even better, there's a systematic review that came out about two weeks ago in kids, 50% of them don't have any symptoms at all. You know, in studies where kids have been tested systematic, systematically, half of them are truly asymptomatic. So much less severe. And then a lot of them have mild illness. And so even if you have Delta being more severe in kids, you know, you have a tripling of very low risk of hospitalization, very low risk of intensive care, very low risk of death. That said, Delta is highly infectious. I, I think one of the frustrations for me in terms of, for example, the Ontario modeling table is we've got, we, we know what this looks like. I mean, we had estimates over the summer that, you know, 70% of kids may well be infected this fall with Delta. That's 1.4 million school children in Ontario. So even if you're talking about rare risks, uncommon risks, if your denominator is that big, bad things are going to happen to kids. And I think, you know, I've said this before, I think part of being a decent society is you care about things, bad things happening to kids, even if they're not your own kids, you know, because it's going to be someone's kids. And I care about that. You know, I know mathematically it's very unlikely that it'll be my kid, but it's going to be someone's kid. And that bothers me. And I think that's worth investing in to prevent. No, I agree. I agree. <laughs> I mean, I, I agree. And I think this is where, again, we talk about that sense of community. We talk about that sense of we're not doing this just just because we're doing this because we, we want to protect others. We want to protect seniors. We want to protect those who are vulnerable, those who can't be vaccinated like our children. And I think that I've never seen we're literally just saying, hey, we are looking out for you. We're looking out for you and the rest of the community. And we're, I, I've never pressured anybody. I've always said, you know, like, what are your concerns? What are some of the things that scare you the most? And have those conversations. I, I think I'm kind of agreeing with you guys. Like, we just got to see what happens. I don't, I don't know. Actually, one of the things I will say is, you know, um, you know us, we, we like to call it out. We're going to call out whatever it is, whether it's bad actors, whether it is, you know, we have the truth in our pockets, we're not going to hold back from that. And I also know that you're not afraid to challenge the status quo. Why do you think that's so important in the work that we're that yourself and myself and Sarah do as advocates? Why is it important to challenge the status quo? 
so 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 all of us are you know we we we're in regulated professions and i think that's potentially a challenge because you know we have to be professional and we have to watch what we say because we're identified as part of a, a regulated profession and people are going to associate the things we say with that profession and i've had you know people threaten to you know report me to my college and so forth for being outspoken and you know so you don't want to cross a line and be unprofessional at the same time we're supposed to be helping professionals you know helping professions and i think when you see things that are obviously wrong and obviously going to hurt people to me there's an obligation to call them out i mean that's what we're we're supposed to do you, you know if i if i see government policy being pushed that I think is going to kill people. I think it's unethical for me to just bite my tongue and say, you know, I don't want to ruffle feathers here in Ontario. I, I think, I think that's the unethical thing to do. And I know it doesn't, you know, and you know, it doesn't always end well for people who are noisy. Uh, my dad said this to me a couple of weeks ago. He said, you don't have to be Ignat Semmelweis. You know, Ignat Semmelweis was this doctor who, uh, identified hand washing as something that prevented women from dying of childbed fever. Wow. Oh, it's a good story. And the best part about the story is the name of the hospital, which is this wonderful German name. So since they had a, a, a public hospital in Vienna, Queen Charlotte built, I believe, in the late 1700s called the Allgemeine Krankenhaus, which is the, <laughs> just because wow. it's general hospital. hospital. The, 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 it's better in German. So the, the, Semmelweis is an obstetrician at the Allgemeine Krankenhaus. And they have two, two services at the Allegheny Franklin House. One is a doctor's service and one is a midwife's service. Right. Okay, one is male, one is female. Okay. It's mid-19th century. So we're trying to set the stage here. In terms of, there's some interesting gender stuff happening here too. So this is kind of the, the, the cradle of scientific medicine, right? So the doctors are really into pathology. The autopsy, clinical pathological correlation is all the rage. Right, they like chopping people up when they die to see what they died of. So they have an outbreak of childbed fever, which is a group A strep. It's basically group A strep endometritis in the pre-antibiotic era. So it just kills people. I mean, the, the women get infected after giving birth, and they just they die. They die of sepsis. And what the doctors do is, and the, the first thing is, the doctors is a teaching hospital, so there's this sort of, you know, there's hair professor, and then there's the little line of ducklings after hair professor. Because it's a public hospital, the women are basically being used as clinical materiel, so everyone's doing pelvic exams on them, so you imagine this. The women then are obviously getting inoculated with group A strep from the dirty hands of the doctors and medical students. They're dying of sepsis. They're then wheeled off into the autopsy room where everyone partakes in the autopsy, and then goes back to doing pelvic exams on women. And over on the midwife service, they're just, they're just focused on delivering babies, and they don't have an epidemic. On the doctor's service, they do have an epidemic. And as I say, this, this literally goes for years. Ignat Semmelweis is, a, is, an, is an obstetrician, is a professor of obstetrics at, this, at, at, at the university, and he figures out that if you wash your hands in carbolic acid, the outbreak stops. And he's he's been a firm believer that it's the doctors who are spreading this this disease. So Semmelweis really, he's very outspoken. He says, you know, he, he actually calls the other doctors murderers. 
says, you know, you're killing people, which is right. They were like, they weren't killing people. So the, 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 the outcome of this, he figured out what was causing the epidemic. The outcome of this is not that Ignat Semmelweis gets a big prize or gets promoted. He gets fired, right? And they go back to not washing their hands at the Oligomina Krankenhaus and the epidemic restarts, right? And then he goes to another hospital and gets fired from Inubsta, Hungary, and gets fired there too. And he also ultimately, according to a guy named Sherwin Newland, he dies, he's stomped to death trying to escape from a lunatic asylum which is, is a very kind of gothic Victorian ending to the story. But so he doesn't have a good end. And like now, you know, there's a Semmelweis University in Hungary. There's stuff named after. But, you know, his ideas were, were rejected out of hand. And because he sort of was a loudmouth and cheesed people off, he sort of undermined himself. And I, I think, um, you know, I think one has to be conscious of that, that, that if, you, if you challenge people too hard, sometimes you can undermine your own message. But at the same time, I think there is a tension. I think, you know, I think you have to call out when people are being patently dishonest and when people are proposing things that are dangerous or foolish. Or, I mean, this has locked down our society for a year and a half now. It's wrecked businesses. It's killed at least 27,000 Canadians. This is a big deal. And, you know, if we're doing dumb things, it's, I think it is important to call them out. Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of, that's like our mantra too, right? Like at the end of the day, there's certain hills that we'll die on and there's certain things that we're just like, yeah, you know, that's not the hill we're going to die on today, but yeah. that we do have our things, whether, whether it's, you know, if it's going to harm somebody, we we're going to say something. If it's about racism, we're, we're going to say something. There's just certain things that we, we can't not yeah. call out. And I'm glad that you're courageous enough to, you know, take a stance to say, Hey, you know what? Something's not right here and, you know, and do what you did. I think it's, it's admirable. So. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, there's good and bad, right. About, about what we're doing. So we have a platform, yeah. we know people are listening. We have a responsibility to develop, you know, deliver messages that are accurate. But at the same time, we do take a bit of shade from time, you know, one time get, to another. I don't know if we get as much shade as David. Though. Oh, my gosh. I know the whole I'm not even going to go there. But, you know, the hashtag that was created for you that was trying to stomp you down actually did the opposite. So what I call the Barbara Streisand effect. Have you heard of the Barbara Streisand effect? I have. Then that was. The, I, I find that every time I get into trouble, well, that's I get what like happened with the whole hashtag cancel David Fisman, and that turned into the I support David Fisman. So I thought that was hilarious. That the what they set out to do yeah. actually had the opposite effect, and it worked out in your favor. And Absolutely. you took all of those blows like so great. Like like your comebacks were just like hilarious. I loved all of them. <laughs> well. You know, at the end of the day, I mean, social media is sort of our world, but it's also, it's it's not real. Right. It's right. not real. I know. Life. I know. <laughs> I have to remind myself of that daily. Yeah. No, I agree with you. Like, I, I sometimes I'll see stuff. I'm like, this isn't real life. People need to chill out. Like, it's crazy yeah. how certain people can kind of go off and pop off on, on Twitter. And it's just like, yeah, keyboard warrior 101. They would never say this to your face. Right. Right. Yeah, it's all good. <laughs> well, I figure we've covered so much stuff and we could probably go on for hours, but I know that, you know, we have busy lives and I, I wanted to just thank you for coming onto the podcast. But before we wrap up, was there anything that you wanted to discuss that we didn't really touch on before we end for today? I don't think so. I mean, I hope anyone who's listening to this um, makes sure that they're vaccinated. Try to get your family vaccinated. I, I know we... 
you know, within our, our own family, we have, you know, some folks who are more challenging than others. Um, most of most of us are vaccinated. There are some who have sort of fallen a little bit under the sway of some disinformation. So I know it's how hard it can be. But, you know, just try to, you know, protect yourself, protect your family. We're, this thing is going to end. Uh, we're probably headed towards the last act. Okay. And um, uh, it's, a, it, you know, I mean, I guess... It, you know, I think the one thing that I would say is that as nasty as this has been, we are probably between climate change, environmental degradation, global movement of populations, and God help us after this, probably every country on the planet is going to have its biosafety level for a lab where they're I hope <laughs> they're all gung ho about collecting viruses and you know figuring out how to prevent the next pandemic. So we would probably yeah. put ourselves at risk for a future lab lab accident derived pandemic. We need to learn from this because yeah. it's probably not going to be the last pandemic of our lifetimes. There are a lot of different factors pushing us in the direction of an event like this. I think we've learned a lot, and there's a lot that we can do much better. I think vaccinology has changed even over the last two years in a way that hopefully will protect us for from a future event. But I, th- I think the tendency is when this is over is to sort of close the book on it and say, well, that was weird. Let's get back to normal life. Right. This is something that's probably going to happen to us again right. in the decades ahead. And it's really, really important to learn from this and change in response to what's, you know, what we've lived through. Yeah. I mean, we've had enrollment explode or applications explode at the School of Public Health. So I know there are a lot of bright young people who have really got turned on to public health by this. So that's another silver lining. Yeah, no, I agree. I I think that that's an excellent takeaway because I've I've said it this week. I actually had a cousin who recently died of of COVID-19. She lived here in Ontario uh, 40 years old, same kind of story. Like in my family, we're, we're torn where we have, you know, um, some that believe that vaccination is the thing to go do um, and some that don't. Um, she did not heed the advice of um, our family members and did go to Jamaica and did end up um, contracting COVID-19. And within her 10 days there, she spent five days in a hospital mm-hmm. and did die. So Right now, our family is working on getting her body back to Ontario. But again, it it, it speaks to the I am so yeah, sorry. No, I mean, it, it, yeah. it's like, I don't even know what to say, right? I think, again, it speaks to that disinfidemic that we're dealing with. And yep. we, we have to continue just to continue to have courageous conversations, even though, you know, you may have family members that are on, on the other side of the house, just to con- continue to talk to them. So my, I mean, my question to you is what killed her? Did the virus kill her? Did the disinformation kill her? I would say the disinformation. It's, it's so mm-hmm. terrible. And, and, and it's such an insidious threat. It's so undermining our efforts to protect people. Mm-hmm. It really, uh, it really is a, is a hard challenge to me. I'm so sorry that, yeah. that, that, that happened. Thank you, though. However, thank you so much, David, for coming on our show. Like this has been enlightening, a lot of really, really great information packed in and just keep doing what you're doing. We appreciate it. And thank you for coming on the Gritty Nurse Podcast. Thank you. You also. It's a a pleasure to sort of meet you. And uh, thank you for all you're doing. Yeah.
let's do it in a couple months if, if you if, if you're happy sure oh for sure for sure there's got to be a part two 